You're listening to the God Stories Radio Podcast with Mike, Fritz, and Tina. Listen to us live on the Mixler app. Also, be sure to follow us on iHeartRadio and you will never miss an episode. I'm Barbara Beck, host of Welcome Home on Good Life 45, and you're listening to my good friends, Fritz, Mike, and Tina, right here on God Stories Radio, bringing hope, comfort, and encouragement to the world through the power of the Christian testimony. Keep listening for a big blessing from the Lord. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of God Stories Radio. This is session 206. I'm Fritz. I'm Mike. And I'm Tina. Man, I'm fired up about today. It is today. Early edition of God Stories Radio. Three in the afternoon. (laughs) Eastern time. I know it, right? Yes, sir. The sun is out. I know. This is so strange. We're not used to this. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm just uh, reeling with excitement right now with uh, the guests that we have uh, in the studio presently. So, well, uh, how's your week been? You've been doing good over there? Yeah, I've not been working, so any week not working is <laughs> well, a great wow. week. Uh, allegedly <laughs> haven't been working now. Uh, allegedly, outs- exactly. Outside the Probably home, Probably working so harder. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> My goodness, you just, you just don't realize, you know, ladies, I know you understand. You just don't realize how bad it is until you slow down enough to look at Boy, it. Boy, that's the truth. <laughs> What about you, Mikey? What's going on over there? Riding a wave. Ah, I know you've been uh, uh, experiencing quite a few blessings here recently. I couldn't be more happy Soaking for you. Soaking them all in. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, let's get right to the business. We got some shout outs. Maybe we don't new have country? any shout outs for new not. countries. No, not this week. So, um, but hopefully we will have some soon. Um, but I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Oh, please do. I don't want to waste any more time. Wonderful. So, uh, we have um, the lead pastor of Mosaic Church, Pastor Renaud Vanderreet, with us. And um, his church campus is located in Winter Garden. And they also have a Disney campus. And we were blessed enough to attend Mosaic for a short period of time. Um, in between churches before you um, started working at uh, First United Methodist. And uh, we were just blown away by the testimony, the music, the atmosphere, um, the young people and their passion for the Lord. And it just, it all translated and everything was so pure and biblically based. It was just a pleasure to be there. And um, 
you know, I reached out um, to try to get Renault on the show and he was kind enough to say yes. And he's an incredibly busy person. So we are truly honored and humbled that you said yes. So thank you. Well, it's a joy to be here. It really is. And love being a part of more than just the busy world that I typically play in every day. So sometimes when I get to break out and uh, step into a broader space, it's a ton of fun to be able to do that and say yes to that. So grateful to be here and glad to be here. That's awesome. Well, we're grateful and thank you. And we know that you're a busy person, not only professionally, but personally too, right? You have a very large family. Indeed. Yeah. My wife and I have the uh, privilege and um, horror of raising eight <laughs> children. Uh, so we have eight kids um, and currently uh, seven of them are teenagers. Wow. So we have a simultaneous seven teenager house. And then I have a 12 year old who believes that he's a teenager because that's <laughs> his sure entire sibling group. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's a lot of uh, talking back and uh, exerting power in my house and power struggles um, that are part of the <laughs> norm of that stage of life. Uh, my kids love Jesus. Um, they're just not so sure they like me. And so <laughs> if I have to pick between them loving Jesus or loving me right now, I'm Take good Jesus. with them loving Jesus. Have That's right. So, that. <laughs> but, you know, they will love me and, and my wife uh, again at some point in the future when they realize that all of our parenting was on their behalf, <laughs> not as their prison guards. That's so, right. Amen to that. It's a wild ride. That's right. It is a wild yeah. ride, indeed. Yeah. And then four of my children are biological and four are adopted. So it's kind of a, a mixed a mixed home and yeah. comes with its own beauty and brutality, without a doubt. It does, indeed. Wow. And those adoptions occurred in Ethiopia, didn't they? They did. So my four adopted children are siblings biologically. And so oh, they wow. came to us. Uh, seven years ago at once. So we went from a family of six to a family of 10 overnight. And uh, wow. when they came to us, they were 14, 12, 10, and eight. Um, and my biological children were 12, 10, eight, and six. And so that was a collision of mag a magnitude <laughs> that is somewhat unimaginable. Um, <laughs> but it's after seven years of journeying, we've, uh, we are where we are now. So it's been a wild ride, and they were born and raised in Ethiopia, so that's where we found them and met them, and God began that journey for us. Wow. That's amazing. So, Reno, maybe you could take us from the beginning um, of your, your roots, your heritage, and kind of bring us, you know, to your testimony, through your sure. testimony. Sure, yeah. So, I was actually born in South Africa. Um, my parents are South African by birth, their parents before them, and so on and so forth, so I wasn't born in South Africa because, you know, my parents are missionaries from the U.S. or anything. We are South African in our heritage. Um, and so grew up in that environment uh, during the historical spaces of South Africa in some of the uh, mess that it was in, in terms of the injustices that were taking place there, uh, the complications of apartheid and uh, a political racism that existed that was so blatant and all of the complicated realities as to why that existed and, and how that all played out. And I kind of grew up in that environment. My dad was in the military, South African military. So uh, it was an interesting space to be in because my parents um, were uh, strong believers in Jesus. And so kind of grew up in a home where the realities of the politics and the culture were very much laced with a foundation of racism mm. um, and yet grew up in a home where equality was both lived and preached and so kind of lived under this assumption that 
obviously we're all the same and all equal and 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 all human and so oddly enough looking back didn't really in in my early childhood kind of put two and two together in terms of what I what I got to see outside of the home versus inside my dad also being in the military that was a very challenging space because the military wasn't typically a space where you stood up for equality as much as where you protected mm. the system. So my dad fought internally a lot for things that now as an adult looking back, I realized the price that he often paid, um, didn't realize as a child. So I grew up in South Africa. My dad became the military ambassador to the U.S. when I was 17. So me and my two younger sisters moved to the U.S. when I was 17, finished high school out here. And then uh, our story kind of unfolded here, which I'll get to. But growing up in South Africa, um, grew up in a, you know, military home. So, so middle class, you know, like the military, the thing that's beautiful about the military is you don't have more than you need. You don't have less than you need. You have what you need. And mm. uh, wherever you go, the military takes care of you. But you don't like, you know, you're not living it up. So uh, safe military bases you live on, uh, very typical to the military life here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, South Africa being a... First world context in in many uh, ways when I was growing up. So I grew up on who's the boss and growing pains and you know all the same stuff. Oh yeah, here. <laughs> I remember all um, that. And and so life wasn't significantly different there than it than it would be growing up here. Those some subtle cultural differences mm. for sure that I discovered coming here. But what did mark my life from very very early on is I grew up in a home that was authentically Christian. So not religiously Christian, but my parents knew and loved Jesus, and so. Um, I just kind of grew up as far back as I have memory. Jesus has been a part of my story, and mm -hmm. and a and a not a legalistic part, not a lawless part, not a just a just a beautiful part. And so, mm -hmm. um, there's actually been a, a number of times early on in my sort of high school and college years where, you know, you do the testimony thing and you get the little piece of paper and it's like before you knew Jesus, after you knew Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I don't have really a before. Mm -hmm. I just have a I knew him. And then, you know, uh, because I grew up in a home that was authentically following Jesus, grew up in healthy church settings, um, like, you know, I don't really have the drugs, alcohol, death zone, and then Jesus, and then, woo, total changeover. Mm -hmm. I just kind of have the knew him, loved him, he loved me. So I had a bad thought, I remember. You know, like, so yeah. lots happened in my head that was obviously, I mean, right. us humans are corrupt <laughs> and mm -hmm. sinful oh, yeah. by nature, but... I was protected by my relationship with Christ in my home from acting out in ways that would ultimately produce consequences and bondage. So I used to think I have kind of a dumb uh, testimony, like I have nothing cool, you know? <laughs> so, and then I, I became a parent and I realized when I became a parent, there is no testimony I would rather have and want for anybody else than this. Mm -hmm. As far back as I have memory, I knew Jesus and because I did, all I really know in my life is freedom. Like I don't have all these regrets and these dark stages mm. and this mess and these, I just have always kind of known freedom. And so that's a very unique and very uh, privileged space. Yeah, sure it is. And so I yeah, think you bet. Uh, growing up in that space also then, um, you know, even now as an adult, I constantly recognize that given the story I've been given, the responsibility and privilege I have to be able to be a voice for freedom and for the gospel is elevated because I don't have a lot of trauma and baggage from my childhood that I have to carry into my life. I'm not deeply impacted by that as many of now, you know, several of my children are from hard places and then my bio children from the secondary trauma that comes with adoption. So 
very familiar with trauma, very familiar that I don't have a lot of it, which is huge. Coming um, Before coming to the U.S., I wanted to be a marine biologist. I love the ocean. I love the creativity of God in the ocean. I love the unexplored parts of the ocean, which I recognize now in my life. I'm very wired to explore unexplored things. Mm. I'm very much <laughs> yeah. like I'm an entrepreneur in my in my being, and so I want to go find what no one else has found yet and go go do that. And so that's why I think the ocean always had a, and still to this day, has a, a space of wonder for me because of its mystery and its unknown and its beauty. Um, but when I was a freshman in high school, I was um, transitioning from one place to another because my parents being in the military, my dad being in the military, we moved every two to three years, mm-hmm. just typical of military. So I was quite used to making some friends, saying goodbye, moving to the new place. Mm-hmm. And you always stayed in a hotel for two weeks while the military moved all your stuff to the new house. And uh, I have two sisters, younger, so they'd be in a hotel room, I'd be in a room, and my parents would be in a room together. And uh, I was in the room by myself, kind of watching some TV. I remember it still clear as day, freshman in high school. And God just kind of spoke to my soul and said, you're going to go into the ministry for me. And I kind of went, okay. Like, people, you know, what was your calling? And I'm like, there it is. Like, he said it. I went, okay. And from that point forward, I just made the assumption I'm going to pursue vocational ministry, pastoring in some kind uh, or format. And so um, as I developed through high school, gained a tremendous passion for emerging gen uh, generations, uh, specifically middle and high school, and I knew I would be a student ministries pastor the rest of my life. I mean, I had zero desire to work with adults, didn't really like adults that much. They seemed stuck <laughs> in their ways and other things. And so I'm like, the, man, the, the space to be is, is, is with the kids. And... Um, Got into student ministries after high school while going to Bible college, did student ministries. And then our first uh, sort of step into vocational ministry was as a student ministries pastor in Monterey, California, actually, because uh, we moved to the D.C. area when my dad became the military ambassador to mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, through that journey of exploring ministry, what really started coming to the surface was this exploration of the gospel, the good news. What is it? What exactly does the scripture uh, reveal to us and invite us into as followers of Jesus and um, kind of getting to know what it meant to follow Jesus. And that's really where my personal journey began into exploring the nature and beauty of the gospel itself. And that then became my obsession and continues to be my obsession is uh, the gospel being the story of God, right? I mean, the gospel isn't something separate from Jesus or separate from God. It's not like when we say, you know, the gospel matters to me. I don't mean Jesus doesn't. The gospel is the the alpha and omega, the beginning, the end, the redemptive story, God's creation, God's finish, God, the revel, you know, it's revelation, it's Genesis, it's, it's all of it. It's us. It's the whole story. And so exploring the gospel is exploring God and exploring who he is, who we are, who he is for us, who we are in him, what he invites us into what he's restored for us, redeemed for us, rescued us from, it's all of that. So that's kind of been my journey um, from then, and that's led me to some crazy adventures and spaces in the process, which you know we can get into more. But that's kind of the early parts of my story, getting me to student ministries, and then from there, God kind of called me into church planting, which got me to Orlando, which started Mosaic uh, 16 years ago, and kind of quickly gets us here. Now, there's lots of story there, but that's sort of, as you said, the early parts of the story mm-hmm. getting us there. Wow. 
That's amazing. And that's pre-adoption and all that craziness. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so are your are your parents still alive now? They are. They actually live here in Winter Garden. Oh, wonderful. Um, they live 10 minutes from us and moved here really from the Northern Virginia area primarily because we had adopted four kids. We went to eight. The first two to three years of that adoption was um, uh, just brutal in every way and really um, just a wreckage in our home, which it typically is when you step into redemptive spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my parents kind of moved down to kind of jump in and be a part of that journey about two years in. And then my two sisters who are married and have kids as well kind of both followed suit. So actually my whole immediate family all live within 10 minutes of us now and we all kind of do life together. So That's wonderful. 14 grandkids and for my parents and we just kind of do it together. Yeah, and they're all part of Mosaic and yeah, uh-huh. so it's, it's all part of a, kind of a collective journey. What's one of your favorite things about Mosaic? Um, you know, there's a lot, but but at its core, I mean, at its at its essence, um, this clarity that we are singularly um, here to be about only Jesus, to make only Jesus beautiful, to exalt only Jesus, to to functionally. Uh, in every way, think, speak, live in a way that says, if this is not about Jesus, then it is useless. So, mm-hmm. and 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 we really, we spend a great deal of time really digging into saying that and doing that are two very different things. Yes. And so yeah, if we're going to say it, if we're going to believe it, then what does that mean in terms of our behavior? So we really explore decisions we make, things we do, and ask ourselves, if, if we say we believe this, then why are we behaving this way? Mm-hmm. Why are we making this decision this way? Why are we anxious about this thing? Why are we why are we even pursuing things? So we've been doing that at Mosaic from the beginning. We kind of say, we have a thing at Mosaic that always says, um, if we're not making the gospel beautiful, then, then what the heck are we doing? Why are we doing this thing? If, if, it, if we can't directly say that, that, that makes the gospel more beautiful. That exalts the reality of Christ and who he is and what he's done in a greater way. If it, if it can't answer that question directly, then we shouldn't be doing it. So I do love at Mosaic just kind of our focus and our commitment and our uh, vigilance of that reality. But that was born out of the early, early parts of Mosaic when we first started it. And, but it's my, been a consistent theme because oh, it has. I it has, remember the that. the first Sunday yeah. I visited and you had been before me, what the theme was only Jesus. Right. It was everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, you know, that, that was born out of uh, the way that God called us into the church plant in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, we were doing student ministries in Monterey, mm-hmm. and um, God started stirring, stirring my wife and I into this idea of church planting. I, thought, I always thought I might plant a church sometime in my 50s where I knew what I was doing. I was 28 years old in Monterey, California, and God begins to stir. And um, long story short, through a sequence of crazy events, God really called us to West Orlando. Mm-hmm. And so we, when we moved out here, I had two kids— three-year-old and a five-week-old, uh, my uh, two of my bios, obviously. And um, we moved out here with these two little kids. We knew no one here except for one person that was an acquaintance. And we kind of jumped in parachute in. We didn't know that there were church planting organizations that would fund you. We kind of sold a house in California, took the money, and we're like, let's go start a church. And so, you know, now that I'm a part of broader church planting movements like like Acts 29, Acts 29 and things yeah. like that, now, you know, whenever I assess church planters and, and their spouses in Acts 29, I always tell them, look, it's great to be assessed and very important. I didn't do it that way. Definitely not the way to do it. But sometimes, 
you know, God is even gracious in that. I mean, we just did everything wrong you could have done wrong. <laughs> um, but, but God was very gracious. And so we kind of parachuted in here. But when we came, I remember as we explored this idea of church planting. And, and so you have this clear canvas, right? I mean, when, you, when you're entering into an existing church, you come in with history. So here's this history, and you have to enter into this history, and you have to navigate the journey being um, respectful of that history. Mm, mm. Whether it's good history or bad history, right. sacred cows or not, you, sure. you have to be respectful because you can't just tear people from their history. When you plant a church, your advantage is that you have no history. Mm -hmm. So you have, a, you have a clear canvas. And so you get to kind of start from scratch and say, what is our history going to become? How, what do we do now that makes our history in the future? And so as we looked at church planting, we, my wife and I, started asking the question, if we, if we could sit down with Jesus and have a cup of coffee with him and say, okay, we're going to start a church. What would you say are the critical things we need to pay attention to as we start the church? And so we, we thought, well, we can have that cup of coffee insofar as God did reveal himself very clearly through his word, and he wrote it down. So we can actually go and sit with him through his word, by his spirit. And so we did. We started exploring the word. And it's funny, Jesus, when asked in a very specific event, um, okay, Jesus, if you could boil everything down, like the most important thing, the command that matters the most, if you will, the thing that this is it, forget nothing else, always remember this, what would you say? And, and he did. He said, well, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They weren't two separate commands. They were a singularity. You can't do one without the other. You can't mm -hmm. have one and not the other. If you love God to that extent, you will love your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, you do not love God to that extent, and, and vice versa. Loving your neighbor is not a possibility in its true form unless you are doing it by loving God. So Jesus says, this is what it looks like, right? And he actually bothered to say, every prophet command everything, every law hangs on oh, these two things. Yep. Mm -hmm. So if you're having coffee with Jesus and he goes, love me with everything you got and love your neighbor, and your neighbor is the good Samaritan, right? So I mean, it's, it's the person you wouldn't think is your neighbor and the person who is your neighbor. So we kind of started with that premise. What does that look like for a church to say, that's what we're going to do first? So we came up with the statement the way we kind of just ran that is demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people. That that is the thing we have to be about. Not one of the things. It's mm -hmm. it. That's it. If we can, everything we do, we can say we somehow demonstrated our passion for God in that, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And simultaneously demonstrating his passion for people, loving people the way he would love them if he were here with mm -hmm. us, then we would be fulfilling the thing Jesus said was most important. Amen. And then as we dug a little further, the second thing that came to mind as we studied scripture was Jesus said to his disciples, uh, where I am exalted, I will draw people to myself. Now, the context of that verse was Jesus speaking of his crucifixion. And I'm very careful with context. I can't stand when we pull little verses out of Scripture and mm -hmm. we make them what they're not meant to be. Well, yeah, you know, the Jeremiah 29, 11s, you know, like, woo, right. put them on a poster. <laughs> or, you know, uh, Philippians, where it's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me with a basketball poster. And I'm like, it's not what it <laughs> meant. But anyways, um, but uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting derailed here. The point is... <laughs> You're a good company. Though, um, though the uh, the context is his crucifixion, that he would be exalted in that crucifixion, and that crucifixion would draw humanity to himself, there is a broader context there that does play into that, where Jesus kind of said, look, whenever I am made the only important thing, mm -hmm. I will bring the people I want to bring to myself. You don't have to do that. So we made it this assumption. If Jesus said that, 
then what if we started a church and our big strategy was just keep him and only him in the dead center, make it all about him, exalt him in everything we do. And what if we abandon a lot of the growth strategies and make the church bigger? We just said, we're going we're gonna to gather up, we're going to make him beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if he brings no one, he brings no one. And if he brings mm-hmm. people, he brings people. That's mm-hmm. it. So we, we, we took that premise. And then the final one was we in exploring uh, James. Uh, you know, James, it's, James, the book of James is a very interesting book. It's fascinating well, sure because is. it's a beautiful book, obviously, very practical. But James writes the book at an interesting juncture in church history because you have the church um, uh, emerging in the early New Testament, right? Uh, they've just sort of experienced major persecution in Jerusalem, so they scattered from there after Pentecost and that community had built. Uh, the Samaritans have now come to know Jesus, which was a big surprise that, mm-hmm. that Jesus would care about them, um, and they've received the Holy Spirit. Then Cornelius and the whole incident with Peter happens, so now there's a Gentile that's come to know Jesus, so that's a really big deal. But the main church in Jerusalem, led by the half-brother of Jesus, James, doesn't yet really know about Cornelius and doesn't know about all the Samaritans fully yet because, you know, we didn't have Facebook back then or or Instagram (laughs) where you could throw that down. So there's this incident where James, the disciple of Jesus, gets his head chopped off by Herod in the book of Acts. And Peter is imprisoned and then released from prison supernaturally by an angel. And Mm -hmm. then Peter goes underground. He literally tells the church, look, it's getting really hot out there. i got to go underground for a while. So the church, brand new church, brand new gospel, uh, how fragile is this thing really? And they're, they're asking big questions like, do we make it? What do we do now? Do we? And James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, writes this letter. It's the very first letter that goes out to the early New Testament church. That's why it's titled, To the Twelve Tribes Scattered. He doesn't even know he's writing to Gentiles yet, right? He's just like, <laughs> to the church, which I'm sure. assuming is Jewish. And he writes this letter. And how does he start it? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many Mm. kinds, because you know that it is the testing or refining of your faith that develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So he starts out with this assumption, this planet is going to be hard, and when we suffer, don't worry, hang in there because we got bigger promises. So the reason I bring that up is, at the end of the book of James, in this very practical unpacking of here's what it means to follow Jesus, he says this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Just this little thing. We just kind of pass by. So we joke in church a lot. You know, I've, I've heard it done. We're like, okay, everybody turn to someone next to you. Tell them your deepest sin. And what do we do? We laugh like, ha, ha, ha. That's never going to happen. But we kind of, again, made the assumption. What, what if it did? Mm. Like, what if that wasn't a joke? What if we could produce a community where the assumption was you bring your whole self as you are and you create the space where vulnerability isn't the consequence of 20 years together and proving safety. Because I always argue we're not being vulnerable when we've been in a small group for 10 years and we know everybody and so now we share ourselves. Vulnerability by definition is only vulnerability when you share yourself in the danger of being hurt, right? That's vulnerability. I'm doing this and I have no reason to do this other than I trust God. What if we were that vulnerable with each other? And so I started assuming if I don't do it from the stage, it's not going to happen in the community. So mosaics born in this premise, we demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people. We make sure we exalt Christ only in that demonstration. And we make sure we dare to be vulnerable with each other at such a level that it's shocking from the stage and then shocking in the community. And if we did that, could it be that Jesus would bring people to himself as mm-hmm. he sees fit, mm-hmm. that we would experience healing because we're that open and honest with each other? 
and that we would actually be about the business of the kingdom instead of about our own business. Amen. And for the last 16 years, we've been testing all of those theories by doing and sticking to those three things. And so we have tried to make sure we don't divert from that at all. Mm -hmm. And then that led to this deeper exploration of this gospel, this good news of what is our invitation actually. And when we started encountering that, that's where my personal story and the adoption all started coming in and how God used that to lead me to conclude some things about the gospel and what we're called into that's led the church to be what it is today, where we have, I think we have, you know, close to 300 children adopted into forever homes in our church. We have wow. hundreds being fostered. Wow. We have hundreds in safe families. We sponsor kids all over the world. We're now engaged in um, racial reconciliation, women in ministry. I mean, every controversial subject on planet Earth, we dive into hmm. it because we want to find unredeemed spaces and go and redeem them because Jesus said we could. So all that was born then out of some things out of that space that started emerging, which again, I can share more about. But Having yeah. uh, coffee with Jesus is kind of the segue for the next question I'd like to ask you uh, about Axum Coffee. Yeah. I've heard a lot yes. about Axum Coffee and how the proceeds are benefiting and and uh, can you just kind of sure. maybe give a little backstory on yeah, that? Yeah, and, yeah, and it actually plays into the whole story in many ways, kind of continues the track of the story because um, Oxum Coffee was born out of another um, kind of uh, assumption, perhaps, or or perhaps clarity that we gained as we as we got to know the gospel. So to understand why, how, and why Oxum played into the story, which is. Oxum is a, a business. It's um, We have five locations now. It's a bunch of coffee shops that we generate resources, and those re resources are used to affect um, uh, movement of church planting and justice and mercy around the world. Oh, that's wonderful. And the reason we did that was because in our exploration of the gospel, we, we discovered something extraordinary, and it's born primarily, though not exclusively, out of uh, the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, in my estimation and opinion is probably the greatest summary of the gospel fully placed in 10 verses of anything else in scripture. The book of Romans is perhaps the greatest book summary of the gospel, whereas Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the greatest summary. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 covers a couple of things. It starts out by saying we were dead in our transgressions. We were chasing after the things of this world, every one of us. There's no exception to that because of the incredible disaster of the fall of man through Adam and Eve, our ancestors. And so in that fall, Adam and Eve are made to know God and to make him known, right? So we know that our created purpose was, as, as humans, in the beginning, that we were made to know God fully and freely without any restriction. And then in knowing him fully, we were made to make him known. And all of creation was made to make God known to us. So here we are, we make God known to all of creation and to one another, and all of creation makes God known to us. So what, what is the whole symphony? Just all of us screaming the wonder of God mm -hmm. at each other. And that's a pretty cool picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the enemy comes in and convinces Adam and Eve that God is holding them back by not having them eat of the tree of the knowledge of um, good and evil. And that if they did, they would know what he knows. That's what the enemy tells them. You'll know what he knows, which means essentially you'll be like him. You'll be your own gods, and then you'll be free. So freedom is given to us as not being under God's authority. Well, we buy into that through Adam and Eve, but it doesn't produce divinity. It produces death, just as God said. Why am I saying that? Because we see then this track through the Old Testament, the disaster of that fall and sin and its devastation and God's preservation of humanity through the flood, 
then through the Tower of Babel, then through the nation of Israel and the sacrificial system and the law, all that preservation, preservation, preservation of our own self-destruction into this promise of Jesus who then comes and redeems the whole story. Ephesians 2.10 then comes in and says this, you were all dead in your transgressions, chasing after the things of the world. And then verse 4 says, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So the first active reality of the gospel is I was dead and I'm made alive. Now that's that's strong language. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. not, I was sinful and I was made clean. That's one thing. Or I was, you know, I was bad, but I was made good. And I was dead and I was made alive. So we have to see this clarity that the gospel's first act or, or the act of God redemptively first is to bring the dead to life. That's a big celebration. I'm like, wow, I was dead, now I'm alive. So I would call that soul rescue. I needed wow, rescuing. Yeah. He didn't mm-hmm. clean me up. He <laughs> brought me to life. So he rescues my soul. Then it says, and we are now in Ephesians 2.10, we are now going to be seated with Christ at the right hand of God where we will receive the inheritance of God and he will lavish upon us his kindness. So, so not only is my soul rescued, but my future is redeemed. It's not just you're alive now. Good, that's enough. But then he goes, and because you're alive, not only am I going to make you alive, but I'm going to give you a future so ridiculous, so unthinkable, so unimaginable that you have to realize your future is fully redeemed. So now my soul wow. is rescued, my future is redeemed. And I would argue that's enough. Like we're done. We're <laughs> yeah, done with the story. Right. Drop the mic. Oh, move yeah, on. Exactly. Exalt Christ. Worship him for the rest of your life. Except he doesn't stop there. In Ephesians 2.10, he then says this, which is to me still to this day, perhaps the most profound discovery of the gospel thus far, even though not the most important. Our soul rescue and future redemption is the most important. But the most profound and most often missed is this. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared in advance for us to do. It's a insane statement. So here's what he's saying. I am a workmanship, uh, the Greek word poema, same root word for poem. So the picture is we are God's poem to the world. He is writing us to the world, saying here I am through my poem. A poem represents the poet, right? A poem isn't in of itself a thing. It is the heart of a person through words expressed to the world. We are the poem of God. He, He makes himself known in and through our story. So if I am the poem to the world that God is writing, and he says to me, there are good works I have prepared in advance for you to do, and I've prepared you in advance to do them. There's this invitation into that. Not only have I rescued your soul, not only have I redeemed your future, but I have restored your purpose. What does that mean? What was our created purpose? To know God fully and to make him known. We lost that in the fall through sin and death. Mm -hmm. He redeems us, makes us alive, redeems our future. And then he says, now you can know me fully again, which means what? You can also make me known fully. So then he says to us through the authors of the New Testament, and especially authors like Peter and Paul, you are exiles on this planet of death, because it is a planet of death. Mm -hmm. There's some beauty in it, but it's a planet of death, stuck in a body of death. But while you're here, I'm going to restore your purpose to you to make me known in a place of exile. You are going to live with the people, like in Jeremiah 29, where he said to the people that were in Babylon, make this your city, build your houses, get your wives, raise your kids, and seek the welfare of this city, because in its welfare is your welfare, and I will be your God. And he says the same to us through First Peter. You're exiles in this world, 
seek the welfare of this place. And how do we seek the welfare of this place? Now this is where it all comes together and then Oxum comes into it. So I know this is a, a giant circle, but it oh, really no, I, makes I'm, no I'm thoroughly sense enjoying this. Uh, to understand the full I mean, story without this. So then we watch the life of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Here's the profound nature of, of what Jesus did that was unique on this planet and demonstrated Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Here's what he did. He comes into an environment where the people of God didn't have the Holy Spirit, so they were vulnerable to sin because they were still not yet redeemed by Christ, right? So that their souls essentially were not yet alive and their future not yet redeemed. That's a work of Jesus on the cross. So what did God tell the people of Israel? Don't go anywhere unclean. Don't touch anyone unclean. Don't intermarry. Don't go. Like, why? Because you are vulnerable to death and sin. So if you touch anything that is infected by sin, it will spark what's already in you and you will become inf mm. affected. So mm. we see the whole story of Israel wow. that way. The second they mix with anything, they are down the tubes they go. And then he redeems them after an exile and brings them back. So Jesus comes into town. Here's this man who we now know is God in the flesh, right? But he rolls in and he starts doing everything crazy. Uh, you don't go to the, the lepers. Rolls right into the leper colony, starts touching them, talking to them. Mm -hmm. Don't go to the demon-possessed, yep, does that. Don't go to Decapolis, where the, across the, the Sea of Galilee, takes the disciples there. Don't go to Philippi and sit on the rock by where the gates of hell are, goes there. I mean, everything Jesus does, I see the disciples constantly afraid. Like, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that, we shouldn't go there, what are we doing? But what was the difference between Jesus and us? Wherever Jesus rolled in and touched sin and death, instead of being infected by sin and death, he infected sin and death with life and freedom mm. every time. Mm -hmm. He was immune to what we were not immune to. And when he dies, raises from the dead, and ascends into heaven, what does he say to us? I'm going to give you my kingdom now. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to reside in you. And where you go, I will redeem so you are no longer to be afraid and to hide from all of the world because you will be infected. You are to go and to redeem all of the world because I'm with you. So we are literally in an opposite uh, mindset now. I go to unredeemed places and instead of me being infected by them, I infect them, them with Jesus and that is life and freedom. So then if you take Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and the life of Jesus and you put those two together, here is the only possible conclusion. For the brevity and breath of life I have on this planet, there is a singular purpose now. In every circumstance, in every relationship, and with every resource, which, by the way, is my whole life. Circumstances, relationships, and resources. I've tried to think of anything that doesn't fall into one of those three categories in my life, and I can't think of anything. So I take all of my cumulative life, and I now know it's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. Mm. So if I'm married, it's not about what I get out of a marriage or what I even give in a marriage. It's about how a marriage displays Jesus. Now, some days I'll do that well, some days I'll do that badly, but it is still about that. Or what I do with my money, my resources, my life, my circumstances, all of them are an opportunity to either exalt Christ and make the gospel beautiful or exalt me mm -hmm. and make me beautiful. Amen. And every day I choose which do I want to play in, right? So now, if my whole life is about redeeming unredeemed things, then the rest of the New Testament starts going, now let's just be honest, boys and girls. If you're going to go into dark places and redeem unredeemed things, the darkness bites back. It's hard. It's difficult. So what does Jesus say to us? If you're going to follow me, which is being a redeemer as I am a redeemer on my behalf, as I empower you, right? So essentially he redeems through his body, us. Then what does he say it's going to be like? 
You're going to take up your cross daily and die on it. So, I mean, this is language America has long abandoned. Like, no, 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 no. God, God is for you. So he wants to give you a good life with a comfortable space. Now, does God sometimes give us great comfort and convenience? Is the gospel full of prosperity? It is. But that is not a guarantee, nor is it an assumption we should make. In fact, the only assumption we should make is if I'm going to be redeeming stuff that's unredeemed, I'm going to get crucified a whole bunch. So now suffering for the sake of Christ becomes not a thing we pursue as a spirituality, but a thing we do assume on occasion as part of what we do as redeemers. So I started looking at the world and going, okay, if the world is such a mess, then should we not just be about changing the world? And why don't we just assume that we can change the whole stinking thing? We might not be able to, but why don't we just make the assumption we could because Jesus is with us and powerful and in us. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking practically and said, okay, to change the world, I'm going to need people that love Jesus and are sold out and believe that giving themselves and their lives up for his sake is actually the win. So I need disciples, real disciples, followers of Jesus. Two, I'm going to need money because our world functions on money. Mm -hmm. You don't have money, you can have all the people in the world, you can't really move them. So then we're kind of stuck. And I'm going to need platforms, spaces that are neutral that we can enter the world into. So we came up with this premise. If we're going to change the world, we need a church that develops disciples, real followers of Jesus. Mosaic. We're going to need money. Well, we can go ask for money, which I do unapologetically, but we can also go make money, which it seems I can do. So that works out well. So we said, let's start businesses, lots of them, and just have them make a ton of money. And then we, t- then we have money. We can change the world with money yeah. uh, by moving people to where they need to be and empowering them to do what they need right. to do. Mm-hmm. And then third, we need a platform. So we started the nonprofit Love Made Visible. Uh, Love Made Visible is an organization that works with vulnerable children. And the reason we chose vulnerable children is twofold. Because James said in that first letter he wrote, if you want to know what God's really, really passionate about, care for the orphans and the widows. So we're like, well, that's definitely a great command. And so vulnerable Mm -hmm. children, big win. And two, because that's non-negotiable. I don't care what your passions are in life about prison ministry or homelessness or whatever. Do all those. But vulnerable children is not an option. That is non-negotiable. That God does want us all involved in that in some form. And then second of all, when you work with kids, there's hardly a country in the world that does not uh, invite you in if you work with their children. So we knew that that nonprofit, a 5013 separate from a church and mm-hmm. a business, would be a great platform for us to move people through and money through around the globe. So now to answer your question, <laughs> Oxum Coffee I so enjoyed that. is a little part of a bigger story. It's not sure. just an idea that was born in separate from Mosaic or separate from Love Made Visible or separate from the story. Oh, let's start a business. That sounds fun and let's give money away. Mm. It is this larger, broader strategy that is born out of the gospel and its invitation to be redemptive in any environment with the resources we have to change the world. And to do that, we're going to need people, resources, and a platform. And so we are developing a story over a four-decade period. I turn 82 in three and a half decades. And so I have a four-decade plan to develop Mosaic as a church planting and discipleship-making movement, Oxum as a business generating millions, perhaps billions of dollars in the future, and um, a global platform called Love Made Visible. And if theoretically we can develop each of those three over a 40-year period to have their feet on the ground everywhere, and I hand that story over to the next generation and say, could you change the world for the gospel and redeem many things if I handed you a billion-dollar generator a discipleship-making movement with thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of disciples, 
and a platform that's global. If you handed that to me at 28, I would change the world with that. So my part in the story is create it. I won't, mm -hmm. I won't see the full fruit of it. But this is a generational story. I play one part, not all parts. Mm -hmm. And if I, can, if I can help create it, or at least catalyze its creation, then the next generation can right. use it. And that's the plan. If it's glorifying Jesus, it's gonna, he's that's gonna right. bless it. That's right. So, so uh, that's kind of the big picture of what we are striving toward. And then what I have to do constantly, to, to your point that you just said, is I have to remember that I, that I need to make sure I don't buy into the westernized philosophy of Christianity, which essentially says this, we are, we're a consumer culture, as you guys well know, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're a consumer culture, obviously then two things are val valued in that culture, those who produce and those who consume. So our value to America or the westernized culture is how much we produce and then how much we consume. So if you don't produce anything or you don't consume anything, you are no good to our culture because you don't stimulate the economy, you don't do anything. So we, we, we transferred that ideology, which is a wrong ideology, into our Christianity as Westerners. Once you become a Christian, the only shift is I now produce for Jesus instead of producing for myself. But actually the, the biblical uh, gospel clarity is that we don't produce anything. We're not producers or authors. He's a producer and author. We are participants, discoverers, and strivers. My worship is not what I bring to Jesus that I've produced. Look, Jesus, I made this for you. <laughs> My worship is that I obey Jesus. Mm -hmm. So if he right. says, go and do this thing, and I do it and it produces nothing, that's still an irrelevancy. I did what my master asked me to do. Mm -hmm. So we have to change our mindset from what am I producing for God to what am I getting to participate in with God? So wow. we always say at Mosaic, the gospel, the true gospel is what I'm a recipient of, the grace and mercy of Jesus that I had nothing to do with, and what I'm a participant in, the redeeming of this world with Jesus. So if I'm a recipient and a participant, my participation is not what I produce, Jesus produces. My participation is that I strive. So what I have to do in my head is I have to go, I'm striving for this whole story I just told you about, but it may not happen, it may not work. And I've lost nothing. I'm no less valuable if it works or doesn't work. Right. My striving is my worship, not my producing. So if all of this works, great. And if it doesn't work, great. So I am not obsessed with it. Therefore, I'm not tied to it. It doesn't possess me because I don't possess it. So I can focus on, for example, being home with my family. I work about 40 hours a week with all of that happening because I have an attitude that says, when my day comes to an end, what isn't done, guess what? Isn't done. And because it's not mine to produce, it doesn't matter. I go and I hang out with my kids because that matters. And then tomorrow I'll wake up and try again. So I try to live in that space um, as much as possible so I don't get caught up in the idols of what I'm producing or the drive to make all this happen for Jesus when it's not mine mm -hmm. to make happen. Right. I wow. get to be part of this with Jesus, and that's all that really matters. So. Wow. Wow. That just encouraged me. It did. Spoke into my life for sure. Well, I'm thinking what, what, what he just said is also what we, the way we should think about God's stories radio as well. I mean, we've... You know, how many times did you want to quit? How many times did I want to quit? Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is a crazy thought, right? Here's a crazy thought. So what if you guys do this every week, unrelentingly? You go from 206 people to 2,006 people, mm -hmm. and you never gain a single another listener. In fact, the listeners you currently have go away. And you do this, and nobody listens, right? But God asked you to do this. That's right. Would that be enough? 
It exactly. would be. See, yeah. it has Absolutely. to be. Yes. But right. but if we're honest with ourselves, right. it's yeah. not enough, right? It took us a little bit to get it's, there. It's not enough. And and it has to be enough because we don't do what we do because we're producing something. We do what we do because he asked us to do it, mm -hmm. period. That's right. the heart of a servant. A servant doesn't ask the king, why are you asking me to do that? The servant just does what the king says mm -hmm. because to the servant, the servant's joy is that he's doing what the king or she's doing what the king said. So mm -hmm. I, I make um, waffles on Saturday mornings at my house. Uh, my wife does much of the cooking because she's amazing at it, and I get to do the waffles on Saturday morning, and we make waffles from scratch. Ooh. So we grind out on wheat, and then we wow. make the waffles from scratch, and I have eight kids, as I mentioned. So especially when the kids were a bit younger, they'd always say, Dad, Dad, can I help make the waffles? Now, when a kid asks me if they can help make the waffles, <laughs> that is not a helpful event. Like, I don't celebrate that. That's I don't a moral like, dilemma right This there. is awesome. I think to myself... Great. Now I'm stuck having to babysit a kid while trying to make waffles. And not just babysit a kid, but that kid's going to do a bunch of stuff in the kitchen that probably doesn't help one bit, right? right. So but what did I say? Feeling that person. Yeah, that but, but what did I say every time? I said, sure, you, you can help make the waffles. Uh -huh. So here come two kids into my kitchen. I'm making the waffles. Now, so here, here's the question I'm going to ask myself. Okay, if none of my kids show up in the kitchen that day and I make the waffles, do the waffles end up on the table? Yes. Yes. And do everybody enjoy the waffles? Yes. Yes. If my kids show up in the kitchen and they make a mess of the kitchen, do the waffles end up on the table? Yes. Yes. Sure because I've already planned for that and I've got extra ingredients for when they mix the ingredients wrong. And <laughs> if they burn a waffle, I've got plenty to make more waffles. And at uh -huh. the end, it might take a little longer, but the waffles will end up on the table. Right. If my kids are in the kitchen and they're super helpful, will the waffles end up on the table? Absolutely. Yes. You bet. So the waffles ending up on the table have nothing to do with whether my kids show up, don't show up, whether they do well in the kitchen or don't do well in the mm -hmm. kitchen. So I let them in the kitchen because I love spending time with my kids and they want to be in the kitchen because they love helping dad. That's it, right? And the waffles ending up on the table is a guarantee. So if it's a guarantee, wouldn't it be right then for my kids to say, well, why would we help in the kitchen if the waffles are going to end up on the table anyways? Well, it's because they don't come help in the kitchen because they actually process. What's the point of me helping? They help in the kitchen because they love being in the kitchen with dad, mm -hmm. right? Right. When the waffles end up on the table, the only difference between my kids participating in the kitchen or not participating in the kitchen is this. Here's the only difference. We sit down and I say to the family, hey guys, enjoy your waffles. That's the day that none of my kids showed up in the kitchen. My kids showed up in the kitchen. Hey guys, give a big round of applause to Cole and Rahel because they made the waffles today. Now, did they make the waffles today? Yes and no. They did insofar as they participated. So they did, in fact, make the waffles. Mm -hmm. But I don't mean if they hadn't helped, there would be no waffles, right? So. I keep that kitchen in my head every day. When I, when I wake up in the morning and I roll into my day, I keep that kitchen in my head and I say this. I'm going into the day today and there are things to be redeemed. People that need to know about Jesus, uh, people that need help, care, love. I'm going to participate. Now, today I might not participate in the kitchen. I might not love my wife well. I might argue with her. I might be a disaster of a dad today. I might go into the community and be more captivated by, by what I want than what God wants, and it won't be a great day of participation. Will the things that need to be redeemed today still get redeemed? Yep, because yep. it's not my Absolutely. responsibility. It's God's. Now, tomorrow I might get up and participate really well in the kitchen. Like, just be focused on Jesus all day and really just uh, you know receptive to the Holy Spirit and make the decisions he makes, and that's a really good day in the kitchen. Will the things get redeemed that need to? You Absolutely. Bet. 
Or I might go in the kitchen, work with God, but I just might be terrible at it today. <laughs> uh, I have a conversation that goes really badly. I say all the wrong things and the person hates me. Or I share the gospel, but I don't really know the answers they have. And they walk away rejecting Jesus. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if only I'd been better equipped. I might have bad day in the kitchen. Mix the wrong. Will he do his business and redeem everything? Yes. You bet yes. you. So what's the difference then? Why do I get in the kitchen every day if God's going to get it done anyways? Here's why. Because there's no better day than being in the kitchen. And when the kitchen's over that day, there's only one of two possibilities that exist. Either God will say, everybody, look at what I've redeemed, which will be awesome. That'll be enough. I'll celebrate it. That's awesome. Oh, he'll say this. Everybody, big hand for Renault. He helped redeem these things today. Now, he won't tell everyone I made a mess of it. and He won't tell everyone it didn't go so well. But what he will say is, you helped. So when I leave this planet, I'm only interested in one thing. Not what I've produced, not what I've brought to the table, not God going, look, he started businesses and churches. and uh, I just want God to be able to go, everybody, this is Renault. He was in the kitchen with me. Because my worship is just getting in that old kitchen. And I know every day I'm probably going to make a bit of a mess of it. But that's okay, because God didn't need me in the kitchen to produce waffles. He needed me in the kitchen to mix stuff with him. And so I'm just going to mix stuff with him every day. And when the day's over, I'm going to go to bed, sleep well, and know that whatever mess I made or whatever good I did, the God I serve already figured it all out. Mm -hmm. And my joy is participating. My joy is not producing. It's participating. I'm so glad you shared that story. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> Woo! Wow. Wow. I yeah. Think that just changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. And I sit in that story every day. I, I remind myself every day. Otherwise, I get captivated by the things I seem to produce. And I get all yes. big-headed mm -hmm. or small-headed. Mm -hmm. you know? right. Our struggle in life is always we think too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves. And Christ helps us think rightly of ourselves every day. So I, I, I fluctuate back and forth. Today, I think too little of myself. And I'm, uh, I didn't do, and today, I think too much of myself. And I just try to go, if I just participate and I just enjoy doing what I do, then when I when I mess up, I won't think too little of myself. I'll just thank God that he's gracious. And when I get it right, I won't think too much of myself. I'll just thank God I get to participate. And that's where I want to live. Wow. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> that's kind of putting flesh on Jesus, so to speak. You know, yeah. 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 You, you have something you can relate to. And like you said, that's in, in the forefront of your mind. Yep. It keeps you checked. Yep, it does. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that's kind of the that's kind of the story. And then in the midst of that story, you know, we have eight kids, and four of them came to us uh, seven years ago. And I always tell people, when we adopted our children from Ethiopia, um, when we when they entered into our home, and at the time they came, they spoke no, spoke no English, really didn't know anything, and um, it was like taking two tractor trailers hmm. and driving them at each other at 100 miles an hour and hoping that when they collide, they turn into one big tractor trailer. And what, what really ended up happening was when they collided, they, they turned into exactly what you would think when two tractor trailers collide turns into fire and death and dead mm -hmm. bodies and craziness. And so the last seven years has just been the quiet process of collecting all the parts of these two tractor trailers and rebuilding slowly a new tractor trailer. So while we're doing all this stuff, the real priority is rebuilding a family or rather building a family out of lots of pieces of mm -hmm. trauma and mess and and so my wife and i all the stuff i talk about is not theoretical in our home we fail every day in our home we struggle every day to be the parents we want to be to be the spouses we want to be to be the people we want to be we fail more often than we succeed uh, and that's why that story is so dear to me because i'm in a kitchen a lot that i fail in i mean i 
I fail legitimately more often than I don't in terms of the dailiness. And so that story becomes dear to me because it reminds me that my failures in the day don't disrupt the will or plan or redemption of God. And so it's helpful because I live in a life where, I mean, it's just hard not to fail because mm -hmm. it's a dramatic and crazy sure. home I live in. So, mm -hmm. well, that's okay. Yeah. And then just so much responsibility too, you yeah. know, leading a church and so forth yeah. as well. Wow. So it's helpful to leave all that responsibility with God and Absolutely. to just be a participant, a three-year-old three in the kitchen, right? Yes. And when you're a three-year-old in the kitchen, there's not a whole lot of pressure. No, like, there's not. Whether the church makes it or not, it's not on me. It's just right. not. So no. it's growing right now. It's doing its right. thing. That's great. But if it doesn't, you know what? I, that's fine. As long as what? I am demonstrating my passion for God and his passion for people. I am exalting Christ and I am being as vulnerable as I can. If those things are in play, then the rest is just kind of like, let him do what he does. So. I hope other churches pay attention to that model. Right. Well, yeah. and, if, and if a church does that, he will bless it and it will continue to increase. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, then he's up to something and mm -hmm. I'm, cool, I'm cool with that. Right. Because you know? it's, it's not my story. You said something earlier on in, in the very beginning that, uh, you know, some crazy thing, thought process came to you and usually when it's crazy and weird and it's it's usually from god yeah 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 no it's been a it's been a joy of a journey with all of its beauty and brutality not an easy journey not a not a, a journey without uh a lot of struggle and hard and and wrestle and uh but but nonetheless a, a beautiful journey and one that we're in the middle of and so right i don't know when my last breath will be it may be on my way home today it may be uh 30 years from now i don't mm -hmm. know but while I have breath, uh, I may as well strive to participate with God in the kitchen. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> wow. Never going to forget that. <laughs> I'm not either. I yeah. have to one, one quick question before, yeah. before we let you go. And uh, gosh, I could stay here all day with you. But I, uh, Mosaic has one of the most interesting lobby cultures I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, was that something that you inherently thought about when starting Mosaic? I mean, yeah. just when you walk in there. The lobby culture itself, and and you can bear witness to mm -hmm. this, is just amazing. Yeah, you know, um, and 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 again, it's a great question, and every question that you're going to ask about Mosaic, I'm going to come back to this. So the the way we make every decision there is we ask ourselves, okay, the gospel, this redemptive reality of God, what is it, and what is it trying to say to us? So, for right. example, the sure. gospel is surprising and delightful, right? The gospel is inviting. The gospel is comforting. The gospel is a space that you just feel like, man, it's it's loving. The gospel has all of that in it. The gospel is demanding. It is binding. It is it is it is uh it is scary. It is the gospel has prosperity in it and it has poverty in it. I mean the gospel has a it's like a it's like a, a beautiful jewel that you look look at. Uh, you know, the Hope Diamond, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Hope Diamond, biggest diamond in the world. And it was at the Smithsonian a couple of years ago and they put it in the middle of this dark room with these lights shining on it, and it would just spin. And I remember standing at the back of the room, and, and you watch this diamond, and the simplicity of the diamond was extraordinary. Just this rock that's just beautiful because it is. So the simplicity of the gospel is extraordinary. He came, he died, he rose again. It, he saved us. I mean, it's beautiful, and it's just pure two-year-old simplicity. Mm -hmm. But the gospel is also like that diamond. Every turn it makes, mm -hmm. it changes color. And it shows you a new aspect of life, you know. So it's so complex that you could explore it the rest of eternity and never find the fullness of it. Mm -hmm. And so I love that. And so for at Mosaic, we always say, 
okay, if we're going to have coffee and donuts in the lobby, for example, we don't do it because we want to draw more people or we want to keep people. We do it because the gospel's coffee and donuts, isn't it? I mean, when you come into a place brand new and you feel a little a little uh, uncomfortable and what's going to happen, nothing like hiding behind a cup of coffee and a donut. It just makes you feel so much more safe and never, secure. Never a truer word was and spoken right really, there. And so, so we were like, when we were asking questions, we're like, how do we help a person walking into our lobby feel safe? We're like, oh. Coffee and donuts, that helps them feel safe. How do we make this place feel like home? Because psychologically, when we walk into a place and it feels like a building rather than a living room, mm -hmm. it's, it feels different. Why do we want to make it feel that way? So that people will come and stay. No, we don't care if people come and stay. Because we want people to experience our demonstration of our passion for God and his passion for people. So the lobby then, we, we said, one, it has to feel like home. So everything we do in that lobby comes down to it's got to feel like home. Because isn't God home? And two, it's got to tell the story of who? Jesus. Jesus. Right? The gospel. So in our lobby, we looked at everything and said, how do we tell the story of the gospel in this place? And so we, again, had, went and had coffee with Jesus, if you will, jumped into his word and said, how does Jesus tell the story of the gospel? And two of the ways he did was he said, the gospel is like a mustard uh, plant. Uh, that it just invades the garden. So in Jesus's cultural time, the mustard plant wasn't about how small the seed was. It was actually about how pervasive the plant was. You plant a mustard plant in your garden, and What's dude, you got to watch that thing because it just takes over the whole stinking garden in two flat seconds. Mm. And so Jesus was saying the kingdom is like a mustard plant. You plant it in the garden of this dead world, and you blink, and it will invade every dark space. That's a beautiful picture of redemption, mm -hmm. isn't it? And then he and then he talked about the idea. Um, of the ripple, like that we go out and he goes with us. So in our lobby, when you walk in, you see ripples everywhere on every piece of oh, furniture. Absolutely. And then you see plant life growing out of the walls. Right. We don't have actually plants sitting in the lobby. Why? Because we want people to know every time you come in that lobby, subconsciously you're like, we are the plant life that invades the city with redemption and life. And we are the ripple that goes out. So between the donuts and the coffee and the blue shirts and the welcoming, that's because the gospel is all those things. And the story, that's because we tell the, gos the gospel story. And then the lobby just ends up being what it is, right? When, once you make those decisions, then a lobby culture is a lobby culture because you're making those decisions. So that's how we make our decisions. I'm going to see your kitchen in everything now. <laughs> you know, like with the coffee and the donuts. That's, that's mosaic being in the kitchen. Yeah, that's right. We just want to be intentional about ultimately making the gospel beautiful in everything we do. And so every decision we make, how we spend our money at Mosaic, how we handle the budget, how we hire staff, I mean, all of it, we ask, we really do ask your time, how does this make the gospel more beautiful? And if we can't answer that question, we don't do it. Wow. So It really can be that simple. It really can be. It really, really we, can. Uh, so <laughs> we so overthink things and mm -hmm. complicate things and... Yep theorize and wow well i know you're busy renault i'd keep you all day i sure would i got enough coffee we'd just sit right here right but, well uh, we probably mentioned a bunch as of much as i'd love to be here all day i have seven kids i have to logistically i know you do and take care of this afternoon we uh so appreciate you being with us and uh we are a home of the shameless plug here at god stories radio so if there's anything you'd like to talk about or plug website urls anything Breaks, takes. Explore Jesus as much as you can. He's there worth every second. You better believe it. That's what I'm talking about. And that's the only thing worth plugging. <laughs> Amen to that. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Well, thank you again for your thank time. You so thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It Enjoy was to be great. with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. It was great. Unbelievable. 
All right. If you enjoyed the show, drop us a line at godstoriesradio at gmail.com and uh, give us a like on Facebook so you can uh, keep up with uh, Renault's testimony and everybody else's. We love to hear from you. And uh, as always, we appreciate you praying for us and, and being with us and, and listening. And we just thank you and praise you. And uh, just thanks again, Renault. We really My appreciate pleasure. you. Thanks for having me on. All righty. Well, that about wraps it up for session 206. I'm Fritz. I'm Mike. And I'm Tina. God bless. God bless. God bless. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers. But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light, but it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And I
Jesus.